Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. We went to a barbecue the other night. Holy cow, it was so nice to see everybody and to have that many people together. Hosted by Rob and Doug with Matt's brother and family and our brother-in-law and a friend of his. Matt and I, of course, our kids couldn't be there. So just 11 people, mostly outdoors. Just so great to see everyone and be at a social event. In the days leading up to it, my buddy Rob and I were tossing ideas around and I said I would bring fruit salad. He said... And it's fruit season. And I said, dang, there goes the idea of using all canned fruit. Kidding, of course, fruit salad from canned fruit is not what I had in mind. But this got us reminiscing about family dinners and special desserts on special occasions, from canned pears or peaches with ice cream to ice cream with a spoonful of creme de menthe. And how when I was, I don't know, 10... 12? My folks started giving me a small glass of wine with dinner when we had fancy dinners. Now, a fancy dinner meant something like roast chicken or roast beef or beef stroganoff, some some meal that was a bit more interesting than the standard everyday fare. You could tell when it was a fancy dinner because my dad would carry the table from the kitchen through to the dining room. Because when I was little, we didn't have a dining room table. With the table in the dining room, it would then get a tablecloth and the nice placemats, and we would put special music on the record player. Most often, this uh, multiple record album of classical waltzes. That was the fancy dinner music. Ah, yes, the simple pleasures of childhood. I should really have saved this intro to a later chapter when Griffin goes to her folks for Sunday dinner. But... I didn't. Now, you may recall, last week, Griffin told Jason she was invited to join a band and she'd said yes. Mateo appeared, Jason was flattened, and Mateo said, welcome to the team. And then, Rickenbacker introduced us to his friend Phoenix, whose last name, incidentally, is spelled R-E-Y-S-I-N-G, by the way. And we learned that the two of them are part of an otherworldly LARPing tournament. Griffin and the Spurious Correlations by Krista Wallace Chapter 4 Incredibly, still May 6th Mateo and I spent the next half hour removing Jason from my life, literally and figuratively. We dragged his sorry ass out into the hallway outside my apartment. Mateo guarded him while I gathered up Jason's toothbrush and sundry items from my bathroom and the one drawer he'd occupied in my room. I snatched his jacket off the hanger in the front hall closet, recalling that I was the one who'd hung it there. Jason had left it on the couch. I was forever picking up after him, and he didn't even live here. Bastard, why had I ever been... But there was no point in going there. I had come to my senses, and that's what was important. I dumped his stuff on top of him, and it tumbled all around, much as a shovel full of dirt would had I been burying him alive. We stood there looking at him for a moment. Mateo said, This is a good look for him. I laughed. Then Mateo and I went back into my apartment and locked the door. Thanks, I said. Do you want some tea or anything? No, thanks. I should get going. Yeah, I guess. I'll call you tomorrow, okay? 
Yes. I felt suddenly frantic. I had committed now. What was I supposed to do? I had so many questions, not the least of which was, how did you get here? I don't even remember telling you where I live. And the door was most definitely... Wow, is it really 1 a.m.? I looked at the clock, and as if to confirm the time, a bloody great brick wall of fatigue slammed into me. I staggered, if you can believe it, and Matteo grabbed my elbow. Now, I am not a helpless female. It's not a role I am suited for at all. But when this man touched me, I was overcome with the desire to swoon and let him draw me into his arms. He looked down into my eyes. Come on, Griffin girl, you've had quite a night. It was an attractively clumsy effort at an endearment, and I loved it. He led me to my room where I lay down and was oblivious to his departure. And now it is May 7th. I was in the middle of an awesome dream when a horrible sound jarred me awake. The sound repeated a couple of times before I recognized it. I picked up my phone and cleared my throat. <clears> throat> Hello? Griffin, it's Brian. My heart jumped into my throat. Was I late for work? No, it was Monday. The store was closed. What's up? "'Griffin, I have a favor to ask you. Colin broke his hand. He can't play for a few weeks. Can you take over his lessons for a while? He can take on some of your sales hours, which I think you'd prefer. Plus, you've said you'd like to take on more lessons.' "'I had? I was aware of a niggling little warning signal, but for the life of me I couldn't think why.' Brian went on. He only has five students, and four of them come on Saturday. The other we could move so it's right after Derek Sheffield on Thursday. What do you say, Griffin? I got out of bed and went to the calendar on the fridge, rubbing the back of my head and thinking hard. Damn it, there was nothing on the calendar, no clue to what was bothering me. I should be excited at the prospect. I don't want to pressure you, Griffin, but Alex is full and Sandra has already said she can't do it because it won't work with her daughter's daycare. I really don't want to tick off a whole passel of parents. Yeah, no problem, Brian. I can do it. Audible sigh of relief. Great. Thanks so much, Griffin. How about an extra 50 cents an hour, too? My heart leapt. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. I hung up and flopped back down on the bed and snuggled up with the down-filled quilt. Oh, to get back to that dream. The damn phone had been such a rude awakening. It had wiped the details of the dream from my mind. All I remembered was the feeling. Feeling beautiful and appreciated. An image drifted before my eyes. A blue cyclorama, a waterfall of music, a godlike musician with great hair. Shit! I sat bolt upright. Oh, no! Rickenbacker had as good as told me I'd have to quit my job to be in the band, and here I'd taken on extra hours. Sweating like a hard-run horse and feeling sick to my stomach, I took myself to the kitchen. I rubbed my hair and paced around, seeking some form of direction. Kettle. Where was it? If I were a kettle, where would I be? Cupboard next to the stove. Nope. Cupboard next to the fridge? Aha! I put the kettle on the counter and rubbed my hair some more. What the hell was I going to do? Water. I had trouble fitting the kettle under the tap, and a whole lot of water splashed all over the wall and counter, and some escaped down the drain before I got any into the spout. Breathe, stupid. I put the kettle on the counter again and gripped it with both hands. I glared at my reflection in the convex stainless steel. 
come off it. How hard can it be? My chest rose and fell with a couple of steady breaths. I plugged the kettle in and grabbed a cloth to wipe up the water. Brian would understand. Oh, sure, he'd understand, and then he'd be royally pissed off and hurt, and he'd fire my ass and never want to speak to me again. After all he'd done for me, the job, the break on the cost of renting equipment, the encouragement for my musical career, letting us rehearse in his studio sometimes, and most recently the deferred payment plan on a brand-new Fender Telecaster guitar. No, there was not a chance in hell I was going to let Brian down. I still had Rickenbacker's card. I could just call him and let him know I couldn't do it. Matteo's guitar playing, the rest of his band, the tingle in my spine as we nailed those harmonies, his dreamy smile, his steady hand on my elbow, the tremor that shot through me when he touched me, his gentle voice calling me Griffin Girl. <laughs> no, there was not a chance in hell I was going to turn this band down. Rickenbacker had asked for my full-time commitment. Did it have to mean I didn't work at the music store? I would just have to make it work, that's all. Try it for a while and see how it went, and then make a choice. It wasn't too much to ask to give it a shot for a couple of weeks, right? Something came through the mail slot and made a soft thud on the carpeted floor. Despondently, but with a sort of determination, I hung the cloth on the faucet and went to the entryway. A rectangular brown package sat there. Odd, it was early for the mail. But who doesn't find the arrival of a parcel exciting? I picked it up and turned it over. It was oblong, about two inches thick, and weighed about the same as a paperback. A quick peek out the peephole showed me Jason was gone, but there was a trail of his crap pointing the direction he'd taken. A running shoe, an old capo, a golf ball he'd peeled all the plastic off of, his toothbrush. I went back to the package. It was addressed in a flowery script to Griffin Trowbridge at this address, but the stamps were bizarre, colorful, but not recognizable. The cancellation mark had obscured the city of origin and the postmark was smudged. The guy upstairs had put on some music. I didn't recognize it, but it sounded like the soundtrack from a horror flick, mysterious enough to perfectly underscore this intriguing moment. My tummy did a little flip as I tore off the paper and laid it on the table. I held a wooden box. I lifted the lid and found a folded-up piece of honey-colored leather tied with a leather string. Once the string was untied, the unfolded leather flaps revealed a pocket, out of which I pulled a knife in a sheath. Its four-inch blade was shiny steel and appeared to be all one piece with its handle, which was roughened by diamond-shaped carvings. It had a nice weight to it and felt good in my hand, the way a nice wine glass feels good. In the diffuse natural light from the window, the knife seemed to glow. Quaint, I said aloud, a little tremor fluttering in my chest. What did this mean? Who had sent it, and why? I stuck the blade back into its tight covering, tucked the thing back into its pouch, and folded and tied it with a shutter. Uncertain what to do with it, I stuck it on the shelf in the closet and shut the door. I folded up the brown paper covering and put it in the recycling tub. I went back into the bedroom and sat on the edge of the bed, contemplating what to do today, on my day off. Vacuum, maybe. Yippee! My cell phone rang. "'Griffin, where are you?' said a vaguely familiar voice. Uh, it's my day off, so at home? I rubbed my still bleary eyes. 
You realize, do you not, that you are supposed to be working in our kitchens right now, Rickenbacker said. I leapt to my feet. How had I missed this? Your supervisor is already less than impressed, and he hasn't even met you. I felt sick again and paced the hall, racking my brain. But I don't remember anyone telling me what my schedule would be. I hadn't even decided to take this when I left last night. We're off to a poor start if you're going to invent excuses. Please get here as soon as you can. He rang off. I screamed into the phone. I don't even know where it is. I have to take transit. I pressed the hang-up button and tossed it on the couch. I waved my arms wildly as I tried to get things straight in my head. Pacing back and forth between my TV and the kitchen table, I clutched tufts of my hair. In through the nose, out through the mouth. In through the nose, out through the mouth. I picked up the phone and pressed the buttons to search through the call display. Brian's call was there, but the one that had just come in was not. Great. Now my phone wasn't working properly, again, on top of everything else. The phone beeped as I hung it up. I dropped it back onto the couch. My feet kept moving me back and forth across the living room floor. I stopped in the middle of the room and spoke with conviction to the poster of Van Gogh's Starry Night on the wall above the couch. It's okay. We'll make it work. It'll all be fine. It's about the music. I showered and dressed in record time. I threw a peanut butter and banana sandwich together. I had no idea what to expect at this place. Grabbed a granola bar and an apple and tossed them in my backpack. Hair uncombed and still wet, I grabbed my jacket, my guitars, one on my back, one in my hand, and my small rehearsal amp awkward on the bus, but I didn't know what sort of equipment they might already have. Ordinarily, I would have a chance to ask these types of questions. I locked the door behind me. It hit me then that the apartment had been decidedly moist, more so than after a shower. Shit, I'd left the kettle plugged in. I set my amp down, unlocked the door, bashed the neck of my acoustic case on the doorframe as I hurried in, unplugged the kettle, and rushed off again. I ran down the stairs, faster than waiting for the elevator. I figured I'd take the train downtown and head to Rickenbacker's. It obviously wasn't a restaurant, but it was the only address I had. It was a place to start. I stepped out of the building, and my left foot went into a puddle. It was pouring rain. Damn. No umbrella, and no time to go back for it, and no spare hand to carry it if I did. I set down my amp to pull up my cell phone. It wasn't there. I had left it on the damn couch. Still no time to go back for it. The bus was due any minute. Hunching against the weather, I started for the bus stop. When a car pulled up alongside, I ignored it until it honked at me. I nearly dropped dead when I saw Mateo at the wheel of a stunning bright blue mini convertible, top up in the rain, of course. It was not the car I'd have imagined a guy like Mateo driving, but then Mateo was not like any guy I'd ever imagined. The passenger side window lowered. Rick said you might need a lift, he grinned. Put your gear in the back. That's, that's great. I opened the hatch. With the seats down, this little thing had tons of room for stuff. I laid my acoustic guitar case alongside Mateo's, the electric on top of that, shoved the amp in at the side, then went around to climb in. This is gorgeous! I settled into the heated leather seats and ran my hand along the pristine dash. So, do you live near here or something? No. He seemed puzzled. As a result, so was I, so I didn't pursue it. I tapped my foot to Tracy Chapman, playing on his car stereo. So where are we going? To Salamanders. Where is it?
Powell Street. How come Rickenbacker thought I would be in today when nobody told me? Mateo shrugged. Don't worry about it, Griff. He gave me a sidelong half-grin and I stopped worrying instantly. I think he's probably just excited about your being involved. I know I am. I felt myself blushing, so I concentrated on the trees swishing by out the window. You sure know how to make a girl feel welcome. I hope I do, and I hope you do. We're going to be great, Griff. There was something about the way he called me Griff that was so different from when Calvin used that name. Calvin was my best friend, and it was a nice feeling to be called a nickname by a good friend, but there was an almost magical tone to the way Mateo said it. I was grinning all over, inside and out, and felt warm and fuzzy to go along with it. I knew I had better pull myself together, or I'd be a mushy mess and not good for making music at all. Besides, I was grateful for the lift, and I didn't want Mateo to think I wasn't. Conversation was called for. How long has the band been together? Not too long. Was he a lousy conversationalist, or was he just shy? I preferred to think the latter. What's your favorite band? I ventured. Excellent choice of question. There followed a stream of names, everything from ACDC to Zeppelin, and I responded with equal enthusiasm. I especially approved of his appreciation for Rush, Yes, and Kate Bush. Now that you're in the band, it would be neat if we could do some Kate, he said, sending my heart through the roof of the mini. Female vocal is going to really help us be more versatile. Sweet, I said, with equal parts buzz and lameness. Salamanders, as it turned out, was located in a crummy area of Vancouver in the downtown east side. Let's just say I was glad to have a ride. Mateo pulled into the parkade entrance and flipped on the headlights. I had never seen such a dark underground parking lot. Cripes, this is scary. How do you mean? He steered the car expertly around the tight corners, tight even in a mini, and down the steep slopes. The headlights didn't penetrate the darkness one iota. They didn't even shine on the walls. What was the point of them? How could Mateo see a thing? Um, well, it's awfully dark. He smiled, which is why I noticed it wasn't pitch black within the car, and I could still see him. You afraid of the dark? I hesitated because it seemed like he didn't know what I meant. Well, no, but parkades are usually lit up. I mean, I wouldn't want to walk through here alone. I'm driving, he said, as though that answered all my problems. I, I meant... He rounded a corner and suddenly the place lit up like a football stadium. I twisted around to see behind me. The darkness from which we'd just emerged appeared to me to be a wall painted black, a gaping square of dark that shrank as we pulled farther from it. Judging by my vast experience driving in underground parkades, we had come down about three levels. The parking level we were now on was occupied by a smattering of cars with a few clustered round a central entrance to the building. Mateo pulled the little car into a spot next to a hearse-like vehicle. We got our guitars out of the trunk, and I followed him to a green door with a sign that read, Salamander's House of Music and Pudding This Way. The door opened into a hallway not unlike any other hotel or restaurant service corridor. A service elevator lifted us and deposited us on the first floor, where I followed Mateo to a well-appointed rehearsal studio. A drum kit, a keyboard, microphones, and guitar stands and amplifiers were all set up on a dais at the far end of the room, which was about four times the size of my living room. Nice place. Sound baffles hung on the walls and ceiling. Stacks of chairs up against the wall indicated that the space was at least sometimes used for larger groups or maybe performances. 
A rack of music stands in the corner would be handy for other types of bands, too. What a cool place that would provide such a rehearsal space for its own musicians. It must mean the restaurant was noteworthy as well. Why had I never heard of it? I couldn't wait to start filling this room with music. You can leave your gear here, and I guess you'd better go find Rickenbacker. Where would I find him? I reluctantly set my guitar cases on the hardwood floor up against the oak-paneled wall. I wished we could start playing right away. I may need you to give me a tour. Mateo laughed. <laughs> I can understand why. This place can be a little confusing. But don't worry, I'll take care of you. I couldn't hope for anything more. He locked the studio door, which was a relief because I'd have worried about the safety of my guitars, and led me down a bizarre hallway with so many twists and turns I wondered why we hadn't crisscrossed our own path. The walls were papered in the diamond style of a colorful harlequin, and the textured pattern hurt the eyes. Moreover, it did not supply any landmarks. I was hopelessly lost and cursed the architect who designed this structure, and the interior designer, too. A little confusing, I said. That's a bit of an understatement, don't you think? He took my hand and gave it a squeeze. You'll get used to it. Here we are. We emerged from the narrower corridor into an entryway of sorts with a set of industrial metal double-swinging doors, the kind with round windows in them. Matteo pushed on the right-hand door and I went past him into a swirl of mayhem worthy of Kitchen Stadium. Multiplied by ten, complete with underscoring. Seriously, the music playing through the speaker system was the flight of the bumblebee. The kitchen staff wove in and around each other, wielding wooden spoons, spatulas and mixers, stainless steel bowls of what might have been batter, and cookie sheets of dough in hand, like dancers in a musical about baking. Matteo walked me over to an egg-shaped man in a black jacket and apron. Chef, I'd like you to meet our newest acquisition. Griffin here is a very experienced pastry chef. What? No, I'm not. My dad... Chef pumped my hand. Griffin, it's great to finally meet you. Well, you too, but really, I'm not... Come now, there's no need to be so modest. He mock-punched me on the jaw the way my granddad used to do to me when I was four. I turned to Matteo to protest, but he'd vanished... I was not beginning to get used to that sort of thing. Chef put his arm around me and led me over to a workstation complete with a large island table, surrounded by ovens, a couple of fridges, and more counters with cupboards and drawers, filled with equipment and utensils? That's where I'd start looking, anyway. What we really need for this evening are a hundred and fifty servings of creme brulee. Can you do that? He started to walk away. I wondered if there were some exercises I could do to keep my heart down in my chest where it was supposed to be. I chased after Chef and touched his elbow, trying to sound urgent but not contrary. Honestly, I have never... Stephen here can be your assistant. He gestured to a tall, pimply, brown-skinned youth in kitchen whites who stepped out from where he may have been hiding in a corner. He approached like a bunny who has been instructed to pet the dangerous animal... And with that, Chef bolted. I looked at my new assistant and grinned reassuringly, though there was no way he could have seen me with his head tipped down like that, not to mention all that hair. The swinging doors crashed as another man burst into the room like an explosion. The entire kitchen staff stood at attention. I don't know how the music knew to stop, but the kitchen was as silent as a cave except for the flop of the doors as they swung back and forth and finally stopped. I glanced around at my new colleagues and waited. 
The man was not much taller than I am and was sort of scrawny with a mosh of black matted hair, but he had an air of self-importance. He wore what looked like coils of gold springs all around his torso and each limb with, was that a unitard underneath? His gaze didn't wander around the room. That sounds too random. His gaze surveyed the room and ultimately rested on me. I tried not to blush, but there's only so much you can do about that. And you are? I... Damn it. Why did my throat have to constrict just when I was trying to sound confident? I'm Griffin. He didn't respond. Trowbridge. No response. I'm new. I'm... I figured that much. In the band? Nothing. You know, the band with Mateo? That got a reaction. His face bloomed into a sunny grin and he clapped his hands together. Oh, Mateo, he's marvelous, isn't he? This seemed to be directed at the kitchen staff as a whole, and they all nodded and smiled in appreciative agreement. I allowed myself to breathe again, relieved we seemed to have found some common ground. Yes, our Mateo is practically what holds this place together, wouldn't you say? I shrugged and smiled a little. Uh, yeah, well, I hardly know him, but so far he sure seems great. Seems? Seems? He is great. He's a musical genius. Yes, yes, he's wonderful. Well, Griffin Trowbridge, I'm new I'm in the band. I am Phoenix Rising. He pronounced it rising, as in bread dough, as in, well, a phoenix out of the ashes. Oh, nice to meet you, I stuck out my hand. He didn't take it. In fact, he seemed put out. Do you not know who I am? I definitely couldn't stop the blush this time, nor the sweat. Um, well, you just said you are Phoenix Rising, so I have to assume you're Phoenix Rising. He rolled his eyes. It's rising, not rising, and I am the owner of this establishment. Oh, a revelation. Sorry, I didn't know. Nobody mentioned... I thought Rickenbacker... No, no, no. The man was beaming again, and I felt unaccountably relieved. He's my partner, but he takes on the managerial duties. So, you're Griffin. I nodded, glad everything was clear now. Yes, I'm Griffin. His grin became a glare. You're late. Taken aback, I swallowed. I'm sorry, you see, I didn't know... We don't tolerate lateness around here. I was interested in playing music. I had not signed on for this. Well, maybe it would be a good idea if you told me my schedule so I'd know when to come in. He huffed and pivoted like a musician in a marching band with a dismissive wave of his hand. Never mind that now. I want creme brulee as our feature this evening. Understand? Creme brulee. And he was gone, the doors hardly even swinging as they closed behind him. The kitchen staff had already gone back to their tasks, and I hadn't even noticed the music starting up again. This time it was jolly fiddle music. Was this some kind of a joke? Stephen stood there, hands behind his back, awaiting instructions. His stare between his bangs rested on the counter behind me, as if it would have been considered rude to meet the eyes of his superior. The armpits of my shirt dampened. Is there a recipe book somewhere? I asked Stephen. I have never made creme brulee. I don't know why Matteo said I'm a pastry chef. I'm not. It's my dad. 
Stephen turned around, walked two steps, and fetched a book from high on a bookshelf I hadn't noticed before. It wasn't so much a book as a tome, complete with leather cover and gold-leaf writing on the front and spine. It was about six inches thick and dusty as a Saskatchewan dirt road in drought season. The book was titled, My Seventeen Years as a Fort Steel Madam. Um, Stephen, I need a recipe, not a memoir. He thrust the book into my hands with an insistent nod. The damn thing weighed a ton, and it dropped onto the work table with a resounding thud. I opened it at random. Dust flew everywhere. Great, now I'll have to clean the work surface before I can do anything. The page on the left was a list of items one might take on a camping trip. The page on the right, however, was, oddly enough, a recipe for creme brulee. How do you figure that? I asked of no one. I tied on an apron I found hanging in the corner and read through the recipe. It didn't look all that hard. And who knew, maybe some of my dad's jeans would turn up. The recipe was for only a dozen servings, though, so we'd have to do it over and over. We got started, Stephen following my instructions as I recited them out of the book and still never looking at me. We were a quiet team. The blending of the milk, cream, vanilla, and sugar, the separating of the eggs, all seemed to go well. I brought the mixture to a boil on the gas stove and then set it aside to cool. Then it came time to pour the milk mixture over the eggs. As I stirred, a funny thing happened. Ah! I cried. The mixture turned scarlet. I reread the recipe. I saw nothing in the ingredients which could account for the transformation. It was bizarre, but I kept going. Stephen got out the little ramekin dishes to make individual servings and set them on the counter before he began the second batch. I poured the cream into the dishes. Given the size of them, the recipe made 21 servings instead of 12, so that was handy. I put them in the oven inside a large roasting pan of water as the recipe instructed. This is going well. Stephen and I cracked eggs, poured cream, measured sugar over and over with increased confidence. Each batch turned a different color. There was lime green, kelly green, royal purple, mauve, lemon yellow, orange, and magenta. It was during the third batch that I noticed the music coming through the speaker. It was a song from a musical about the biblical story of Joseph and his coat of many colors. The singers were reciting a list of colors, which made me wonder how they could memorize lyrics like that. I chuckled at the coincidence. That's kind of funny, huh? I said to Stephen. He looked surprised and, without moving his head, focused his eyeballs somewhere to his left. He didn't say anything. The music, I mean, I explained. Stephen's eyes turned to his right. I decided it would be best to drop it. Each time a batch came out of the oven, it went on the rack to cool. Then we filled the refrigerator with our little cups of brightly colored heaven. They had to refrigerate for several hours before I could torch them, so I asked Chef, who was working with the other cooks, what I should work on in between. Just then, Matteo reappeared to say I was needed at rehearsal. Chef rolled his eyes but waved me off. I have to be back in three or four hours to caramelize the brulee. Matteo smiled at me. No problem. I felt as wobbly as the creme brulee. Matteo and I retraced our earlier steps along the winding, blinding corridor. The route seemed less complicated this time. Maybe it was just because I had been so nervous on our way to the kitchen, and I was already getting used to the place. 
Or maybe it was that Matteo walked beside me and smelled sweet, kind of like he was wearing vanilla-scented deodorant. Or it could have been that I was so excited to play guitar and sing with him that everything in my life made more sense just then. In any event, we made it to the rehearsal studio. The drummer, bass, and keyboard players were already there. Matteo pointed to a microphone where two guitar stands had been set up alongside an amp, which meant I could take mine home. One never knows. I got out my guitars and set them on the stands. What do you want to start with? I needed to know which guitar to tune first. How about we warm up with Take It Easy? We discussed harmony parts between me and the other band members as I adjusted my mic height and tuned my acoustic. While the other guys finished setting up, I noodled with Gotta Have You, the song Calvin and I would be playing at his sister Teresa's wedding on the 19th. After a minute or two, I looked up and instantly felt a feverish blush. Matteo was watching me, wearing a crooked smile that triggered a roller coaster in my belly. I pulled myself together as best I could, which wasn't very well at all, and said, Ready? Matteo just nodded, his blue eyes still connected to mine like the sun through a magnifying glass. They had the same effect on my substratal region as if I were a dry leaf. A breath gusted out of me as I broke eye contact and turned to the mic, awaiting the count-in. Matteo's voice was rich and gorgeous, and when I joined in with the harmony, the blend made me giddy with pleasure. Afterward, we tweaked a couple of things and then decided to move on to bring me some water, and boy, could I sing that song like a method actor. Some of the lyrics drew warmth to my cheeks again, but I like to think I maintained a professional demeanor. The guys applauded when the song was over. It was such a rush to play with a band who treated me like I was the best thing they'd ever heard. I mean, maybe it was a little over the top that they high-fived each other, but in my other band, the highest praise anyone gave was, sounded cool. It probably didn't help that I was the leader there, so I always felt a bit uptight and responsible. This, this was like the lid had been taken off a pressure cooker. We played a mind-blowing variety of tunes, and it's funny, but it felt like I had never played better than I did opposite Matteo. I don't know, there was just a vibe between us, a connection. It sounds all airy-fairy to say it, but that's how it was. I felt more confident with my playing and with my singing. The drummer and I were locked in, the bass player too, which made the rhythm perfectly solid. It probably also had to do with not having to worry about whether the lead guitarist was going to take over and change the arrangement in the middle of the song or go off on some wacko unplanned solo. There's a certain level of trust necessary in the relationship between musicians, and Matteo and I had it in spades. Not to exclude the rest of the band, mind you. Matteo had introduced them, only I guess I was nervous because as we played, I realized I had forgotten their names, the way details of a dream slip away as you wake up. Then I was embarrassed to ask. Still, they were sharp as nails, tight, solid. I was certain these guys knew their stuff so well nothing would go wrong, but if it did, we would get it back together in moments. The audience would never notice a thing. Rehearsal was, in short... Awesome. After three hours of it, with a short break for some lunch in the middle, I was ready to go home. I had the exhausted but buzzing feeling that comes from an exhilarating rehearsal. Then again, were I at home already, I'd be too wired to sleep. It was just as well I had dessert to deal with. 
Overall, I felt better about the entire arrangement. Making great music made up for a lot. Still, it was with an ache of regret in my heart and soul to turn my amp off and put my guitars in their cases. What else do you and the others do here? I asked Mateo. We wait tables. Good. Rickenbacker had said everyone was expected to help with the restaurant, so I was glad he was following through with that. Besides, it meant there was a chance I'd run into Mateo occasionally. By the time I returned to the kitchen, I was way less nervous about having our first gig on Thursday. In fact, I could have played that very night with a high degree of intestinal fortitude. The one thing I was a tad miffed about was that Rickenbacker had promised me a lead guitarist, not a whole new band. Don't get me wrong, he had come through. But how had he misunderstood I wanted someone from my band? I hadn't wanted to join a new band myself. Griffin, you're so lame. I'd sort of let myself be railroaded. Should I speak to him about it? If I played the gig on Thursday, would it be too late to change my mind? Was there a statute of limitations on stuff like this? Then again, after I had given the spurious correlations a try, maybe I could invite Mateo to meet the guys in my band and maybe he'd like to play with us. Yeah, that's what I'd do. At this point, I was only just beginning to make music with Mateo McCallum. In the kitchen, I found my apron and tied it around my waist. I'd been at work for like six hours already, so I hoped it wouldn't be much longer. Still, I didn't mind seeing my creme brulee through to the end. Chef was chomping at the bit to get the feature dessert started. I grabbed Stephen, who had just finished up slicing date squares. How come the experienced chef got date squares and I was stuck with creme brulee? So he could help me get the desserts out of the refrigerator. We moved tray after tray onto the counters, and then I checked the recipe. After I put on the sugar mixture, I knew they needed to be fired. I mean, that's the brulee part. It seemed you could either broil a bunch of them at a time or use a little blowtorch specific for the purpose. I asked Stephen how it had been done in the past. Stephen, with his terrific energy, enthusiasm, and helpfulness, looked at the floor and shrugged like a guilty child. Is there a blowtorch thingy? He pointed to a drawer. I found it and turned it on. It worked, to my great relief, never having used one before. I approached the table of custardy desserts, took one in hand, a green one, and prepared to aim and fire at it. The double doors burst open again, as they had in the morning, and I jumped. However, I was focused on the cup of creamy goodness in my hand and didn't turn around. Hey, new kid! Yeah? I made the blowtorch approach the ramekin. What are these? Phoenix waved at the trays of rainbow-colored desserts, and his gold coils swung on his arm. Ulp. Creme brulee, I chortled. We could say we're celebrating diversity and inclusiveness. No reaction. I mean, I know they're kinda... They're not just kinda anything. I hate creme brulee. But... Had I lost my mind? You asked me to make it. A hundred and fifty of them. The blowtorch was still flaming, and I shut it off. Now, dear, I have to say, I hate terms of endearment from people in authority, especially ones I don't know, especially ones who are being assholes. I hate creme brulee. Do you understand me? Hate it. So why would I have asked you to make it? Maybe if you have a split personality, I thought, or maybe are just an asshole. Brownies. Now there's a treat. Make brownies next time. But I... Just do it, new kid. It's Griffin. 
He ignored me and abruptly gave me the back of his coil outfit. Pausing only to snick a crumb of brown sugar onto the floor, he stalked out of the kitchen. I noticed I was trembling and took some deep breaths to steady myself. As the swinging doors slowed their flapping, I became aware of something else, too. I looked down, raising both clenched fists at the same time. Clutched in my left hand was the little leather sheath I thought I'd stuck on the shelf in my front hall closet, and in my right, instead of the blowtorch I thought I held, my knuckles were white surrounding the handle of the knife that lived in the sheath. It might have been my imagination, but I could have sworn its pointy tip twinkled like in a movie. One more oddity creeping into my consciousness was the theme from the good, the bad, and the ugly coming through the speakers. So, Phoenix is a bit of a jerk, and Griffin has a knife. Tune in next week when Griffin says, Wait a minute, what? (laughs) The funny thing is that when I was coming up with the concept of this story, I was trying to think of a way to describe what was happening in the tournament. And I was thinking, okay, it's a role-playing game, but it isn't a tabletop RPG. It's three-dimensional. It's actual people actually moving about in the world, interacting. So it's like, you know, like not the cartoon version of the movie. It's it's live action. That's it. It's a live action role-playing game. And I can call it LARPing for short. How clever am I to have come up with that? And not long after, I learned that LARPing is already a Thing. And that's what they call it, live-action role-playing or, or LARPing. I thought, but I made it up. Crap, someone else already made it up before I did. But on the other hand, I was relieved because it meant, hey, I don't have to explain what it is because people can figure it out or they already know. Anyway, you heard it here. I invented the concept of LARPing. I'm just late to the party. Check out my website at crystalwallace.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to get my newsletter, geez, I guess I should put out another issue of that. Pop me an email at totallyfantastictitle at gmail.com to get previews of stuff and read bonus material and fun things like that. Thank you, as always, to Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Cheers to David and Sharon. Thanks, Phil Dirksen, for the guitar solo. And thanks so much to you. Now, go be fantastic.